This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Greg Rogen with the Houston Chronicle. I'm joined today by a very special guest, this man has been the soundtrack of Houston Texans football since 2002. I'd like to welcome Mark Vandermeer, voice of the Texans, to the podcast. Mark, thanks so much for making time today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Well, Greg, it's a pleasure to be on, and I have no idea what's coming, but I guess I'm ready for it. This kind of came together at the last minute. You know, we had some scheduling issues, but it's going to be fun. I did my crack two minutes of research, do my best here. That's all you need. Can you believe it's been 20 seasons of calling Texans games for you? Has it just flown by or is it, what's it been like? It's absolutely flown by, but then I get all these reminders that it really is 20 years. You know, we have uh, employees in our department who were born just shortly before the Texans began play. So that's a reminder right there. You think about where technology was when the Texans began play. When we had cell phones, yes, but texting was really just getting started, and nobody had smartphones or could watch video on their phones. And it's just a very different world we live in right now, media-wise and otherwise, because to me it feels like, and the older you get, Greg, you know how it is, time just changes the way you experience it. Uh, I think about when Bill O'Brien got the job. That feels like three years ago to me, and it was in 2014. And then you think about Gary Kubiak in 2006 getting the job, and that obviously feels longer, but not that long ago. So it's just strange, 20 years of this run. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm really excited for the future. You mentioned the NFL media changes. Last week was a schedule release, which has become a tent pole on the NFL calendar. When I grew up, you would just you would read about the next year's schedule in the newspaper. It would be like on the scoreboard page. They would list everyone's schedule. Now it's a production. We've got social media videos and things. How has the NFL media landscape evolved since you came here in 2000, like I guess late 2001, early 2002? Well, it's funny because I, I'm not sure if all the viewers and listeners know, but in the first 10 years of me doing this, I worked for Sports Radio 610, yet did the game. So it was kind of a mutual hire. And then in 2012, I came over to work in the building exclusively for the Texans with Texans Radio Real Estate, those programs airing on Sports Radio 610. So I've always lived in both worlds. But I bring that up because that's one way it's changed. Team media has really exploded. And when I came in in 2012, we had maybe three employees, me, Drew Doherty. We had Nick Scurfield at the time, and we had an intern doing video. 
Well, now we have 18 people in this department. So it is really expanded, as you can tell. We produce our own TV shows that air on ABC 13 and KPRC and also Bally Sports. We do all the radio still. I mean, that's been a staple uh, from the get-go. And then social media, 350-plus posts a week, and you need a lot of people to do that. And we're adding more this offseason. So I, I think just for us alone, that's been a huge change. You bring up the schedule announcement. There have been so many, as you say, tentpole events throughout the course of an off season. We cover them all. I know you cover them all and, and it feeds everybody. It feeds the media. The league is more popular than ever. And you wonder, can this keep going? And I, I guess it can, and it will. One time years ago, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Mavericks said of the NFL, you know, hogs get too fat and they get slaughtered, but that hasn't happened to the NFL. How have they created this insatiable appetite for content from their fans? Well, the game itself, Greg, I think is wonderful to watch, right? And look, I love playing basketball, and I still do. But to me, the NFL is the best sport to watch. And I like watching basketball, too, and I like watching golf and a lot of other sports. But there's just nothing like watching football. I mean, the most popular sport in America is NFL football. The second most popular sport is college football. So football is one and two. And by a long way, when you look at the TV ratings, and I think because every game is meaningful. I know they've gone to 17 games, but it's still true. Every game is so meaningful. Every Sunday feels like the first couple of days of the NCAA tournament on steroids, right? Week two is this mammoth monumental event. Week two, week three, every Sunday is larger than life, and they still have that going for them. So everything that happens in the offseason relates to what's going on in the season, and there's always something to talk about. When I was coming up as a sports fan, it seemed like baseball was the number one sports talk sport. And back when I was young, all right, I'm a little more seasoned than you. Back when I was when I was really young, you had sports talk shows at night. And I know in Houston it was the same thing, maybe with KTRH or whatever. They had a sports talk show at night, maybe one of the weekends or whatever. And there was the same thing in Boston when I was becoming a, a sports fan. Anyway, baseball was kind of the sport to talk about on sports talk radio. Now football just dominates everything. I know the Astros are great here in Houston, but still everybody talks about the Texans. The level of care is so high. Even if the Texans are struggling, like they had the last couple of years on the field, people care. People are upset. They want more. They want to win. And it's always interesting. There is nothing like the NFL week one overreactions after (laughs) one game. Like a few years ago, I guess when Tom Savage was benched, you know, uh, a half into the season opener. Then you have Deshaun Watson come in and he starts that Thursday night in Cincinnati. It's it's quite the whirlwind to say the least. I wanted to ask you, I mean, the NFL, we're, they're getting, getting back to a sense of normalcy mm-hmm. after the coronavirus pandemic. I'm not going to say it's all the way back, but it's locker rooms are supposed to be open this fall, you know, have regular media interaction with the players. As a team broadcaster, what was it like for you, like that 2020 season calling games? I know you went to the first game in Kansas City, that Thursday night game, but were were you having to do a lot of things remotely that year in in terms of calling games? Or were you actually able to go to as many games as you wanted? Well, no, because I, I really wanted to travel, Greg. And looking at what was happening in baseball and basketball, and those sports had to stop their seasons, right? And I saw what Robert Ford was doing with the Astros where they were setting up in their booth and they had these big monitors. And I actually uh, messaged with him back and forth a bit. He had that that high nine view, whatever they call it, behind home plate, which is such a crucial camera view uh, for them to be able to call a game remotely. And I thought, you know what? We could do it if we had to, but I really want to travel. There was no preseason. 
we finally get to Kansas City. I say finally because the booths were all changed over. It wasn't positive we could get a booth. And we finally get to that broadcast booth. And look, we ended our previous season there. So to get there was an emotional thing for me. I've called every game in team history, and I thought, I'm here. I've arrived in Kansas City to call the opener, and what could be better than this and everything? We do it, and then one member of our crew tests positive the following week. And then some other conflict comes up. Oh, Andre was going to have difficulty making it to Pittsburgh for the next road game because of some flight problem because of corona and the flight reduction and all that. And I thought, you know what? Let's just try one remotely. Let's just try one from Pittsburgh remotely. We did that. And it really worked. We sent John Harris on the road, our sideline reporter. He had a special device. He could be on the sideline. So we heard all the audio from the sideline. We had great field mics. Uh, we had all the crowd crowd noise. It was fake crowd noise. But whatever was in the stadium, we had it in our ear. And between that and the 70-inch monitors, we pulled it off. And the 70-inch monitor, the wide-angle view, which is crucial, Greg, you got to be able to get that all-22 wide-angle view. If you can't do it, and a lot of guys uh, have called games without it, which stinks. But if you don't have that, it's really difficult to call any kind of football game. But we had it, and the view is somewhat similar to what I get in my binoculars anyway. So we pulled it off that year. Now, we had to do one game from my house. I had to do one game, me at my house, Andre at his house, because I had coronavirus, and there was no way I was going to miss a game. And we rigged up a situation where I could call the game from my uh, my guest room, which is where my home studio is was during coronavirus. And I still have it set up now, so I can go live anytime I want. Which game was that? It was a Green Bay. It was a home game. It was a Green Bay game. Okay. And I kind of felt a little, I was like, I'm a little under the weather, but I'm not, it's just my usual mid-season whatever. I'm fine. And then my wife tested and she said, you're not under the weather. You got to test. And I was like, all right, maybe I'll go test. And I just started to feel bad right away. And I tested, I was positive. So I couldn't go see anybody at that point. And uh, I was thinking about who could replace me. Because you always think about that. You know, who could I get to replace me if I couldn't do a game? And as I said, I've done every game. Uh, But then I thought, you know what? Andre's doing ESPN games from his house. I'll do a game from my house. And he'll be at his house. Now, we had to work with the delay because TV is off. And I couldn't get the All-22 at my house. I just had to do it off a monitor. And that game was horrible. As you might remember, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers coming in, in here and winning big. Uh, But we pulled it off. Somehow we did it. I had the crowd noise. uh, Producer and John Harris uh, at the stadium, Robert Hensley, our producer, was there. And look, they all they all bared with me that day, and we got through it. Those first few weeks before they let fans back in, how surreal was it calling home games in an, in an empty NRG stadium? Yeah, it was it was really strange. You know, once the game starts, you're really focused on the game, and you got the headset on, so you're really just locked in. Uh, but it, it was bizarre, and it was a terrible season too. I mean, that, that's the other thing. If it was. There's no such thing as a normal football season. They all have their own identity and and drama and storylines. But that was a season where you start 0-4. You have that murderer's row of quarterbacks to face. And then Bill O'Brien gets fired. And everything's different. You're wondering what's going to happen. And you have coronavirus going on everywhere on top of that. So it was just bizarro world. Then I got the the virus. And luckily after that Green Bay game, by the way, we had a bye so I could get fully better for the next one. But it was very strange calling games that year. And then the following offseason, last offseason, you're just hoping we can get back to normal. And I remember in June, or it was around June, we got back in the building, uh, vaccinated, uh, I could be in the inner tier now because I wasn't during that coronavirus year. Only John Harris was and two of our video guys. 
So that was great to just get back with the football people and be in the mix, man. I miss that so much. That's so much of this business, especially being the voice of a team and the way we do it, just being with the players, with the coaches, on the practice field, in the dining room, being able to just have small talk with them. It goes a long way toward helping you in your shows and on the broadcast. How has it been building relationships with players the past two seasons with so much turnover in the organization and you've got these restrictions, you know, because of the pandemic, do you, have you not really had a chance to get to know guys or have guys come in and left and you've never really met these guys? It's a great point. Yeah. A lot of guys have come and gone and, you know, I've said hello or something, but never really able to build the relationship with them. Coronavirus was a good example. I mean, you did have some zoom calls, right. With player interviews and things like that. And sometimes on zoom, it can be even more intimate. You know, we, when we were doing the player show that year, we kind of found that, the players at home, they're on Zoom, we're on Zoom, we're all just kind of hanging out. So you have this whatever Zoom level of intimacy you can generate, uh, but there's nothing like being face-to-face. And like I said, seeing somebody in the hallway, hey, what's up? I just saw Davis Mills before this. Hey, hey hi, Davis, what's going on? Just that, you know, just being around the guys means so much to your familiarity with them, uh, being around the organization, the players. Uh, and that that year made it very difficult. It's getting better and better now. We've had some events here. Uh, I've interviewed some of the guys at the events. They've seen me MC stuff. So they're like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. So it just helps out. Uh, you're never as close as the coaches or the or the inner staff of football operations, but it helps to be as close as possible. You've called every game in Texans history. The Texans are this this strange franchise where their first game might be their most memorable. But what's an underrated Texans game for Mark Vandermeer, aside from that first game against the Cowboys? Oh, man, I've got how much time do we have? I've got so it's a many podcast. We can record right. as long okay, as you so, want. All right. I'll give you I'll give you two or three games. No one talks about that are phenomenal games. Year two opening day at Miami. Chris Brown then, field goal. Then yes. Then the Dolphins were good. Right. Jay Fiedler. They had Ricky Williams. They were good back then. They weren't great, but they were good. They were a playoff-type team, and they didn't lose at home in September. I mean, they had lost maybe once or twice in the Super Bowl era at home in September, and the Texans beat them opening day. Andre Johnson's debut, it wasn't a work-of-art kind of game, but it was a win. They still had the baseball diamond there from the Marlins. That was a hell of a win, I thought. Uh, just skip it around here. My favorite all-time victory. I'm not saying it's the best victory the Texans have ever had, but it's my personal favorite, probably beating the Colts for the first time ever in 2015 on the road. First ever road win against Indy. And that was a game which TJ Yates started, gets hurt. Brandon Whedon, who had been in the building for a couple of weeks, played for the Cowboys earlier that year. He comes in, throws a touchdown pass too strong and they're able to win the game it was 16 to 10 that was the year they won a lot of low scoring games and you know they beat the Bengals on Monday Night Football 10 to 6 I love that season and I know it ended horribly with a 30 to nothing playoff loss but I love that season because uh, that was the hard knocks year it started off as badly as you can imagine at two and five but they dig themselves out of that hole and win the division and the way up to do that the digging process was so satisfying. They beat the Jets here. They beat the Saints here. They held the Saints to less than a touchdown. That I think was the first ever time in the Breeze-Payton era that the Saints were held below a touchdown. Uh, and the Texans did it. They had a good defense that year. Uh, they had a really good defense that year and in 2016. You wouldn't know it, but the stats bear it out. 
Uh, the offenses both seasons struggled a lot, but they were able to win divisions those years. That's funny you mentioned that 2015 season because I can I'm going to assume you had miserable times in Atlanta and Miami that year. Terrible, terrible times. Yeah, for me, I think a Texans game that is very underrated. Mm-hmm. 2012 at Denver, Peyton Manning's first year. They yeah. go to Mile High. They slug it out with the Broncos. Matt Schaub loses part of his ear on a hit by Joe Mays. And I think until 2019 at Kansas City, that was the last time they went on the road and beat an elite team on the road. It was a very, you know, very rare win for that era of the Texans. Yeah, a team that eventually, you know, years later with Peyton Manning would win a Super Bowl. But uh, that that was a heck of a win as well. They start out 5-0 and that year before they lose to the Packers on Sunday Night Football. I think had that team not lost Brian Cushing, uh, the script would be written differently. That team was a phenomenal Texans team. They were 11-1. and We all know what happened Monday night at New England in December. And that was part of a, hey, you got four games left in the season. Win two of them, and you have home field advantage throughout. And you can imagine what this place would be like with a bye and then two games at home, hopefully two if you win the divisional round. And they just couldn't get it done. They lost three out of four. They lost to the Patriots. They beat the Colts, but they lost to the Vikings and the Colts on the road on the way out. Greg, the Colts, to me, they're the all-time Texans nemesis. Houston is 9-31 and regular season against the Colts. Uh, a lot of that, most of that is Peyton Manning. Manning was 16-2 and against the Texans as a Colt. That really hurts a lot. I hate those guys in a healthy football way. Okay, I know a lot of people work there, and I like those guys who work there, but this is just one of those things. you got to get over it. you got to get through the Colts, and I'm hoping opening day is a good uh, situation for the Texans. So did you like want to slug Bob Lamey, I guess, when he was their broadcaster? Bob Bob was always really nice to me, you know, and now it's uh, Matt Taylor, who's a super great guy, and, you know, I know a lot of the guys, so you know, obviously, especially in the division, we talk a lot, but, man, the Colts, oh, and it seems to not matter – who the quarterback is. Dan Orlovsky in 2011 on a Thursday night. What? He beat the Texans, and that was the best Texans team probably, not the best record, but 2011, I would say, is the best Texans team ever. And you look at Jacoby Brissett. He's got a winning record against the Texans. And Matt Hasselbeck, when he had Montezuma's revenge in 2015 on a Thursday night winning here. I can go on and on. Don't get me started. You know, there's only 32 of these jobs, NFL radio play-by-play, I'm going to assume you're the only guy who's called every game in your franchise's history. In the front, well, Mike Keith for the Titans has done a lot, but they're not always the tight. If they're going to claim to be the Oilers, then he doesn't get to make that claim, right, Greg? So I yes. guess I am. Yes. So how how does one land this job in 2001? There's no LinkedIn. There's no social media. So. Take me through the process of landing the Texans job for you. Yeah, again, it's a, it's a long story because for me to get to UMass in the 90s and then get to Miami, those were two gigantic leaps that I took in my career that I was really fortunate to get, but I seeked them out, you know, and I tell I tell young people looking for jobs this all the time. You know, you can send your resume in all you want or make a call. You know, there's nothing like showing up and getting right in front of the person, right? And that's what I did with UMass. I made a presentation. I, I scheduled an appointment. I said, I'm coming in. I'm coming. I'm on my own dime. You don't have to fly me in. I'm coming in. Same thing with Miami. I sent tapes. Back then it was tapes or maybe CDs by then to everybody I could think of at the university and WQAM in Miami. And I went down there and I just met with them unannounced, unsolicited, cold call. Now I have sales in my background, in my blood, and I think it really helps when you're pursuing jobs. So I'm at Miami for, I was only there for a couple of years when the Texans actually called me 
And they said, well, look, do you want to be considered, like basically be on the short list of candidates for this job? Not an offer right there, but do you want to be considered for this job? And I thought, I'm crazy not to do this. This is a brand new NFL team. It's the NFL. There's nothing like it. And at the time, the Hurricanes were very good, as you know. Uh, and so I, th- I had to think about it for a split second, thinking, I've only been here two years. Is this a bad thing? Well, it took another year to get the job anyway, and I, I did not want to miss the 01 season for the Hurricanes. I knew that was going to be a special campaign. Uh, I was working on a baseball national championship campaign uh, at, at the time as well. Uh, but, man, that was just great to uh, go through that whole process. I'm still doing Hurricanes games. I'm chasing this job down. I flew myself in twice uh, to do interviews here with the station, with Sports Radio 610, Infinity, CBS Radio at the time, and the Houston Texans. And uh, I got the job eventually, but it didn't happen overnight. It, it was a process. And I, I knew a lot of people were going to look at this hire. I want to talk about a couple of your previous stops before you got to Houston. Mm-hmm. You're at UMass. You're the voice of UMass from 1995 to 99, 1995-96 season. UMass basketball makes the final four, a very memorable UMass team. Names like Marcus Camby, Edgar Padilla, Carmelo Travieso, mm-hmm. uh, Dana Dingle, Dante Bright. Very good. What are your memories of that UMass? He's John Calipari. He's the head coach. Very memorable yeah. guy. You weren't there. I guess it was a, a year or two earlier when he almost got into a post a press conference fight with John Chaney. Yeah, after a game. I wasn't there for that, and uh, there was a lot that happened before I got there. But it's funny because I'm a Boston University alum, and I lived in Boston for a long time before I really launched my radio launched at a small station in Clearfield, Pennsylvania. And five years later, I end up back at UMass after fighting for that gig. And I was at Central Michigan before that for three years. Central Michigan in basketball, the season before I got to UMass was three and twenty-three. So I'm coming from three and twenty-three, and all of a sudden I'm thirty-five and two. Me, you know, you're just doing a, the games of the team. You know, obviously I have nothing to do with it. But uh, opening night for the Hur- for the uh, Minutemen was the Palace of Auburn Hills. They're playing number one Kentucky, Rick Pitino, and a loaded Kentucky team with Antoine Walker and Ron Mercer and Tony Delk, and the names go on. I think they had eight NBA players on that team, and we beat them, and UMass beats them. And the way the broadcast was set up, I'm right behind Calipari, so he's walking back and forth in front of me all night, and I'm thinking, this pinch me. This is unbelievable. You know, I'm sitting here in Michigan where I worked for the past three years doing this game, and they beat Kentucky, and they go on a run of 26-0, and and they're playing an unbelievable schedule. That was no, oh, you were in the Atlantic 10. No, 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 no. They played everybody that year and beat everybody until they lost to Kentucky in the semifinals. So that was a great year. But then Calipari leaves, and I do three more years at UMass, and they're kind of on the way down. They go to two more tournaments but can't win a tournament game without him. Was that Bruiser Flint? Was he the guy that replaced Yeah, he's a great guy, and I think he's a really good coach, actually, Greg. It's just that, you know, one thing that people don't talk about, they lost three-fifths of the starting lineup when Calipari left, including Camby. You know, Padilla and Travieso were there, but they were burnt to a crisp because they played in the Olympics that year. They played international ball for the Puerto Rican national team. And then they come back and they're kind of like dazed and confused. And it just took a while to get going. They made the tournament. They rallied from like a nine and six start to make the tournament. uh, But they really couldn't get anything done. It was it was hard. I, I love Bruiser. But look, Calipari is one of a kind. I'll never forget him. I learned a ton from him. Uh, I just think he's one of these great motivators who makes you better. Even if you're, it, you know, if you're just the, the writers told me he makes you want to write better. That's, that's how great Calipari is. 
1996 Final Four, it's probably the last Final Four that we'll see in a regular arena. It was at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Very good. What was that experience like for you from your your small beginning, your you know, your small yeah. station beginnings to be calling the final four. And unfortunately for UMass, they were just on the bad side of the draw because they got Kentucky in the final four. And the other side is what yeah. Syracuse and Mississippi state. Yeah. I mean, great memory you have. So it, that year was very strange. Um, that final four being in New York, you know, you're in the middle of Manhattan, everybody stayed at the Marriott Marquis. That's where all the stuff was. And you just went out to New Jersey for the games. Uh, and I'll never forget being in that season. The the most memorable game to me from that year is not any of the things I just mentioned. It's being at, it was called the fleet center at the time. It's the garden. It's the new garden for the Celtics, but it was UMass versus Boston college and BC was good at the time. And they had Scooney Penn and Donye Abrams, two good players. And the place was packed. You could not imagine getting a ticket and it was divided exactly in half, UMass, BC, and we're on the floor calling this game, and it's unbelievable. And Edgar Padilla, you mentioned his name, was my favorite college basketball player ever. Uh, he trains a big jumper late to help them win, and then Camby gets a big block to seal it off. That place was on fire, and it was one of those unforgettable days, and they had many. It was Wake Forest, Tim Duncan, and Marcus Camby, Sports Illustrated cover. Uh, you know, they were talking about Russell and Chamberlain with those two getting together in college, and, and numerous other games with big-time players like Stephon Marbury and all these other guys, Lorenzen Wright, and I could just name them all night. It, it's weird to me that uh, the area that I grew up in, you you too, um, college basketball just seemed a lot bigger when it was on fewer channels. You know, you would get like your weekly game on ABC, NBC, or CBS. I want to transition to Miami. You get there in 1999. Full disclosure, I am not objective when it comes to University of Miami football. I became what what you'd call a t-shirt fan in the mid-80s because Miami was on TV every week. I love the style they played. It was a wide open style. They were flamboyant. They didn't mind getting in your face. The Miami you get to in 1999, a little different. You know, they're a few years removed from their last national title. They had to deal with sanctions. Butch Davis is a coach then came in to clean it up. But that 99 recruiting class they had come in, I think you had like Andre Johnson, Clinton Portis, Ken Dorsey, just name after name of notable players. Could you see the talent there right away that they were going to become this juggernaut again? It was did become. It was surreal because I got the job late and it's mid-August. I show up on a Friday and Saturday there's a scrimmage and they're doing it on the soccer field adjacent to the practice field. And my head is spinning. You know, here I am. And I'm a T-shirt fan too, right? You know, I spent a lot of time in South Florida my youth and my parents were snowbirds from time to time and I had a girlfriend down. So I've been down a lot. I always loved the Hurricanes and I loved that 83 team with Bernie Kosar and all that. So I loved that history of Miami, Howard Schnellenberger. Um, I did the games with Joe Zagaki, who's still doing the broadcast, and Don Bailey, who's still doing the broadcast. Bailey played for them uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Anyway, I bring this up because they're just peppering me with information, and I'm peppering them with questions. And I always tell the story about Andre Johnson because I'm like, who's that number five? That guy's unbelievable. They said, that's the next Michael Irvin. I'm like, that's awesome. I can't wait to do games with him. Well, he's going to redshirt this year. I'm like, what? Well, we have Santana Moss. We have Reggie Wayne. We have Daryl Jones. I mean, they had three players 
who were in the NFL. Andre King, another one. They had four guys who spent time in the league, and obviously Reggie Wayne and uh, Santana Moss, a ton of time, in front of Andre Johnson. So he wasn't going to play. He was going to redshirt. And even the next year, Andre Johnson, you know, he's returning kickoffs and doing stuff like that. They still have Moss and Wayne on the team. They were so loaded. That's just receiver. We could go on all day about every other position group that they had. And Ken Dorsey, who's now the offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills, freshman, true freshman quarterback in 99, got the gig late in the season, and they won out with him, and then the rest is history. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your first game calling Miami football is against Ohio State. That's right. Back then, the kickoff classic. Yeah, yeah. Kickoff classic at the Meadowlands. Uh, And I grew up in suburban New York in, in Rye in Westchester County. So to be back in the New York area, with the Hurricanes. And look, I was used to some big-time ball with UMass basketball, but now I'm doing big-time college football, which I've never done. I did Central Michigan in a bowl once or whatever, and, and UMass was good my last year there. They won the Division One AA National Championship. But there's nothing like this, being at the Meadowlands, and there you are. It's Ohio State and the University of Miami, and Jim Kelly comes into the booth and makes an appearance, and I'm thinking, Jim Kelly's in my booth. It was, it was out of this world, and the Canes won the game, and, and it went well for me that day. I called a pretty good game, and I got a lot of love on the air the next day. They were playing my highlights, and it was rock and roll. And people asked me, that, like, hey, rock and roll, did you do it? Yes, I did. It, was, <laughs> it originated back in central Michigan. But I've always said when I get a gig, Greg, I've always asked the employers, do you, do you want me to stop doing that? Because, you know, it's a, it's a pretty significant or, or specified kind of thing to me. I don't want to make it about me, but it's kind of like my thing. But I'll happily drop it if you want but every step along the way the texans included said no you got to say that that's cool do it so i've kept on doing it that's good because i was going to ask you about the origin of rock and roll it's a basketball thing it's it's really for dunking like dunks it rock and roll it's a dunk kind of call and then i kind of started using it in football for touchdowns i said hey it works for touchdowns too not not every touchdown people hear the highlights and assume i do it all the time i only do it for certain touchdowns and the criteria don't ask because i really don't know it's a feel thing so you you're at miami three seasons you're calling games for high profile program a lot of memorable games in those years particularly the final two is there a game or moment from your time at Miami, Miami that really stands out? Maybe that Florida State game in 2000 or Boston College 2001. I've heard your call of the Boston College, uh, Matt Walters interception that Ed Reed ripped out of his hand to, for the tough ceiling call. touchdown. I That was a tough call. And a lot of people are very familiar with that play because you're about to lose. You know, there go your dreams and hopes, right? And then against Virginia Tech. Ernest Wilford drops a two-point conversion pass that would have tied the game against the Hokies at their place, and who knows what happens. So, uh, But I was really happy to get that call as a play-by-play man because I listened to the other announcers that day, and they didn't really see it. And I'm not saying that I knew Ed Reed literally stole the ball from Matt Walters. I thought... You know, in the in the heat of the moment, you're thinking, did Walters just hand off or did Reed just literally rip it out of his hands? So I just said he got the ball on an exchange or something like that. And and I got Reed scoring. So that was a heck of a day. But um, you you named the game for me. It's one of my favorite games ever. Uh, it means so much to me to be able to have called wide right three at the Orange Bowl, which uh, the Orange Bowl, the first time I walked in there was for a scrimmage that first season with the Hurricanes, like maybe a week after the one I was ta- telling you about on that soccer field. A week later we're at the Orange Bowl, they're scrimmaging, and I got chills going into the Orange Bowl. I, The Orange Bowl, you see it in all the NFL film stuff. You know, I, I'd argue that that stadium 
has held more great football games than any stadium in this country. You know, still, still, despite the fact that it's been torn down for a long time. Because you think about Namath was in there, Hale Flutie was in there, all the Dolphins playoff games, including 41-38 San Diego, beating them in overtime, one of the greatest NFL games ever played. Uh, you think about Orange Bowl, Nebraska, Hurricanes. I mean, the Orange Bowl is just loaded with history, and you see the palm trees beyond the east end zone, the open end, and I was just like, I was blown away by the history of it all. And so a year later, calling this wide right three game, and you don't know wide right three is going to happen, but I knew this, that when uh, Florida State lines up for a field goal, if they miss wide right, it's it's definitely a thing because one and two are already in the books. It's been a while, but is this this thing is there's no way this thing's missing wide right. If it misses, it misses, but it's not wide right. So I look at the monitor and it's a live feed, not a delay, and I could see the ball. Whoa, there it is! It's wide right. It was a a great moment. It was a great game. Hotter than Hades. They ran out of water at the half. Uh, it, it was I think the Canes went up big, but Florida State took the lead late. Um, oh, yeah, and then Miami had to get the lead, and Dorsey hit Shockey for the go-ahead score. Then uh, Florida State blew the kick. That was a tremendous afternoon. Was that, was that the moment when you realized Miami is back to what it used, used to be? I think so, but you also know they can lose any game because in 99, they played Penn State early at the Orange Bowl, and Kenny Kelly was the quarterback, and they were doing pretty well, but they had a, um, they had a series fairly late in the game where I think they couldn't kick, pick up a key first down, and then Penn State, who was the quarterback? Maybe Kevin Thompson hitting Trophy Fields for the winner, and it was totally unexpected, and I thought, Man, you could just lose any game. I mean, who knows? You know, and like I just described with the Hurricanes in 01, they could have lost two of those games to Boston College and Virginia Tech. You just never know. It's football. It's any level of football. Now, a lot of those Hurricanes games, though, I did over the last couple of years there in 2000 to 2001. You show up somewhere, you know you're going to win. You just show up. And there's something weird about that. You know, you show up to Temple like you, you guys have no shot today. Okay? It's not happening. There's something about getting off the bus with the Miami Hurricanes. They're villains to the world. And to be part of that for a very short time in their history was fascinating, special. I'll never forget it. Uh, and as I say that, there's just nothing like the NFL. I mean, I, I still wouldn't trade the NFL for any of that, uh, even though I'm so thrilled that I was a part of that for a while. Your last game with the Hurricanes, 2001 BCS Championship game at the Rose Bowl, maybe the most picturesque setting in college football calling a national championship. Did you know that was your last game going in? What was that whole experience like? Uh, yeah, we got out of the stadium that night, and I said to my wife, let's go to Houston. You know, I, I knew. Like, I didn't make up my mind yet. I didn't even have the job yet. But I thought, I'm going to go to Houston. I'm going to go do the Texans. This, this is great. And I thought it was going to go on for a while. I really thought that they would be great maybe forever. And basketball, too. Perry Clark was there. They they dipped in the um, 2000 postseason, but they were coming back. Or maybe the 2001, yeah, 2001 postseason, but they were coming back. And they went to the tournament in 2002, uh, but they lost in the first round. And, you know, they, you know, now they're pretty good at basketball again. They just haven't been able to get good at football again. They lost to Ohio State the next year in the championship, as everyone knows, on the on the bad call. And then they just haven't been the same. They've just been going down, and they they flash every once in a while, especially early in the season or relatively early. 
and then they go down. I'm hoping Mario can get it done. He was on the staff there uh, when I was there. A lot of people, you know, they come and go from, eh, I guess it's every school. But I kind of knew or hoped, and I ended up doing an NFL game. My very first game was a playoff game on Westwood 1 when Howard David's red eye stalled out or whatever, couldn't leave the airport on the West Coast. And Howie Denneroff from Westwood One called me, and he already pre-set it up, but it never happens. He's like, you're the fill-in. Well, he called me that morning. He said, you're on. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm doing an NFL playoff game today. It was Dolphins-Ravens in South Florida, and it was a, luckily it was a pretty easy game to do, low scoring. The game kind of came to me. I had Bob Trumpy working with me. I'll never forget that. Just hearing his voice in my headset was like magic. And, uh, and they heard it here. So I think that really helped me too. Like they heard that I was doing an NFL playoff game. I'm just the national championship guy. So probably a, you know, reasonable hire for them. And, you know, it's worked out very well for me anyway. And I hope they're happy. Talk about working with Bob Trumpy in Houston. You've worked with one analyst, Andre Ware. How long did it take for you guys to develop a chemistry and what's that partnership been like for 20 seasons now? I, you know what I love about it? Uh, when I do listen to us, and, and I used to do it a lot more, but I still do it. I still air check us. Uh, I love the sound of the way we complement each other, you know, the way we fit in with each other. I think Andre and I have chemistry, and it happened, I would say, almost right away, really. We started doing preseason games, and there's a rhythm, and we both understand it, and we don't even have to talk about it. And it works well together. And now we can finish each other's sentences. You know, he knows, he kind of knows what I'm going to say about something. I kind of know what he's going to say about something, but in a good way. And we have John Harris on the sideline uh, who makes it really special. I mean, we have a heck of a trio um, and everybody's important in that booth. Producer Robert Hensley, you know, we've had some engineer turnover lately, uh, but we're getting that together. And uh, the guys back at 610 uh, who run the network. And I'm, I'm not just here to, you know, shout out about them for, for no reason. Everybody works hard to make sure the broadcast works well. And uh, and I'll put us up against anybody. I mean, it's it really is a team thing. And Andre is wonderful. We met – it's funny because I heard him do a demo of the – it wasn't the Texas Bowl. It was the Houston Bowl. And I want to say it was TCU and A&M maybe playing in that bowl in 01, capping the 01 season. And I think he was doing the game with Russ Small or somebody. But I heard him and I thought – this is the guy I can work with this guy. Let's go. And we got along right away and, and he's wonderful. Have you ever had a close call where he doesn't make it in from yeah. his uh, Saturday <laughs> ESPN assignment? Cause he's in some, he's in some far flung places sometimes, you know, there was one time in Jacksonville where I, I'm almost like, I'm just, I just start talking. Cause I'm thinking he told me he was on his way, but I, I turn around and all of a sudden he's, he appears, he magically appears like a genie. Uh, with the headset on. We've never had a major problem, but, uh, you know, it, it's funny because Gene Deckerhoff, who just retired as voice of the Buccaneers and he does Florida State also, he's never missed a Buccaneer game. So he had a clean run. Now he's missed like a half or something, but he's been doing it for like 35 years and never missed a full game. So I think that's amazing. And we've had really great luck with Andre. Now, luckily with ESPN, he can sort of set up a schedule and see where he needs to be and needs to go. And he's got fallback options. So it all works out for us. Had a couple more questions for you. Obviously when a network announcer is calling a Texans game, it's a lot different than your job is, is your job pretty much or a Texans radio broadcast. Is that pretty much a three or four hour infomercial for the team? In addition to like, calling the game 
No, I, I think you're promoting aspects of the team, but you're calling the game, you know, and I don't say we, well, we got to do this and we got to get a first down. And we, I don't say we, a lot of guys do who are home team announcers and I just don't do it. I keep it third person on purpose, but it's very clear who I want to win, right? It, there's no doubt. Now I'm also, I'm not one of these guys. If the other team scores, I won't say uh, touchdown Colts, you know, I, I'll still say it with emphasis because I'm upset. Touchdown Colts, you know, like disappointed, whatever, you know, because that's how I feel. I'm not going to go quiet in those moments. I'm upset. So that's how I call it. That's just my style. I don't have to try to do that, what I just described to you, but I think it's important to keep it third person. I, it kind of drives me nuts when some guys do it. Now it's fine. Some people like it. Great. I'll say we a lot more like during the week on a Tuesday show, I might say, man, we really need this one, you know, but that's just different. You know, that's where I kind of take off my play-by-play hat and I'm a little bit more of a fan and analyst and host, whatever. Uh, in the booth, it's a different deal. You know, it's like doing Shakespeare versus, you know, Broadway musical or whatever. You're doing something completely different in this industry when you're doing play-by-play. It's got to be the King's English. It's got to be, you know, hard-hitting machine gun staccato delivery. And, uh, and I love doing it. And I love being the voice of a team. You know, I never really wanted to be the national guy because I've done some national stuff. I've done NCAA tournaments and things like that, but you don't really care who wins. All you're rooting for is whichever team is behind to catch up and take the lead. Then the other team can take the, you're just rooting for that, that back and forth. I want to crush everybody as the Texans announcer. And it's fun. What opponents play left you the most dismayed on the air? Would it be Rosencopter? Something in that Kansas City playoff game a couple years ago. I mean, is there one uh, that stands out? One that stands out. You haven't named it, and it's from a long time ago. It's the the play that left me the most miserable in the moment was Vince Young thirty nine yard touchdown run in overtime in 06. That one was horrendous to go through because it was a good game overtime. VY, you remember the offseason before was, you know, should the Texans draft him? No, they're going to get Reggie Bush. Oh, my gosh, they got Mario Williams at the wire. And, you know, what's going to happen? And VY, is he going to do well with the Titans? Is he going to win 10 Super Bowls? What's going to happen? And here he comes with the former Oilers, and there are Vince Young jerseys in the stands, and it was a nightmare. And then you go into overtime, and he does that. I, I just – and they used my call on ESPN for that because I said stop the Vinsanity. And I wasn't being positive. I was serious. Please stop it. And uh, I don't know. I said, and again, I said it with emphasis, and I think that's why they used it. Uh, that was a tough one. That was a tough one, Greg. But you know what happened? And Vince Young, you know, the Texans, ne- I don't think they ever got one on Vince Young. You know, he won in Monday Night Football 2009. I think he got a start in 08. Well, oh, no, 08 was all Kerry Collins. Anyway, VY did well against the Texans. Uh, and he has a winning record as a starting quarterback, but it just never worked out for him overall. Last question. Sports franchises, you're either selling winning or you're selling hope. What do Texans fans have to look forward to? It looks like this draft was promising year two under Nick Casario. What kind of strides do you see this team making in 2022? Well, I think you see everything's going up. Like Dom Capers used to say, the arrow's going up. I think it very much is going up here with the Houston Texans in 2022. I mean, the way Davis Mills played down the stretch, Uh, You've added to the running back arsenal, I think, with the O-line. When you look at the names on the offensive line, it's got to get better. Look, even if they got, you know, when you're at the bottom of the league, when you're 31, 32, if you get to 20 or 21 in running the football, maybe even in total offense, 
that could make a big difference in the win total with Lovey's defense taking the ball away. Lovey's defense will be better this year, and if they continue that takeaway ethic, which you know he's going to at least attempt to do that, you're looking at additions to the win total. So just stay with it. Uh, Lovey Smith has been here before. Uh, he's he's a coach who, you know, obviously he's been a head coach for over a decade before in this league, but he's had some time to think about exactly the way he wants to play it now as as an, a wiser guy, a more seasoned guy. And I think he's he's fully energized. I mean, I wish I had that kind of energy. Uh, what is he, 63, 64 soon? Uh, he's really fun to be around. He and Nick have a great working relationship, the chemistry together. I think there's a ton to look forward to. Uh, you've been through the toughest times. Now it's time to go up. And let's see how far they can get up, how fast they can get there. Mark Vandermeer, thanks very much for your time. This was a lot of fun, a lot of great memories that you shared. Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your offseason. Look forward to hearing your calls uh, this fall with the Texans. Thanks a lot, Greg. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. For much more Texans and other Houston sports coverage, please go to HoustonChronicle.com slash sports.